Hello, everyone. I'm Joan Kerr, and this is World Canvas from International Programs. We're glad to have you with us tonight. World Canvas is coming to you from the beautiful Senate chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on the campus of the University of Iowa. And I'd like to begin by thanking our partners, University of Iowa Television, the University of Iowa Pentecost Museums, KRUI-FM, and Information Technology Services. This program is being recorded for statewide television and radio distribution over uh, UITV, Iowa Public Radio, and KRUI. Our topic tonight is the counterculture of the 60s and 70s, and we've got some terrific conversations ahead. I'm going to start by defining the term counterculture and looking at social history in the United States and Europe in the post-World War II era, particularly during the 60s and 70s, when many of the values and norms that defined the 50s were rejected, and a youth culture challenged traditional views on everything from patriotism the law and government, to marriage, race, gender roles, sexuality, and recreational drugs. Let me introduce the people who've joined us here on stage. Kathleen Edwards is the chief curator of the University of Iowa Museum of Art and the organizer of the upcoming Lil Picard exhibit, and she's second from the end. Hi. John Wynette is the head of Intermedia here at the University of Iowa in the Department of Art and Art History, and he also directs the experimental wing of the Virtual Writing University. John's a filmmaker, an artist, and a cultural historian, and he's right here next to me. Art Barreca at the far end is a dramaturg and co-director of the Iowa Playwrights Workshop at the University of Iowa. And our final guest is Lisa Heinemann in the red here. Uh, she's a professor in the Department of History, and she's Sexuality Studies Advisor for Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies. So welcome, everybody, and uh, let's set the scene. <laughs> <laughs> John, may I turn first to you to ask you to take us back a little bit to the period in America after World War II, after President Eisenhower left the White House and turned the presidency over to John Kennedy. We're entering the 60s and we find ourselves facing challenges to just about every established norm. Um, yes, and <laughs> thank you. And actually, I, uh, this is such a, it's been such a great opportunity for me to reflect on some historical incidents that took place in my life and others that I now realize are deeply tied not only to the moment of the 60s and 70s, but also to the present. Mm -hmm. But uh, I realized in preparing my notes for this that it really was critical to begin to look initially at the post-World War II era, a fascinating time in American history that I think was dominated by a kind of uh, urban anxiety uh, very well characterized in film noir. Um, our, our men, if I can say it that way, were returning from the big war. They were seasoned veterans uh, and a little bit combat weary, and the women were resettling into their traditional domestic roles. So a lot of uh, really things shaking up. Uh, by 1992, the avuncular Dwight Ike Eisenhower was president of the United States, I think providing a very narcotic reassurance to the country, uh, despite the fact that there was uh, an enormous uh, fear of the threat of nuclear war. Uh, many of you may recall moments when, uh, at least in your family's history, there were things like bomb shelters uh, and the likes. Um, we had a, a raging war, a cold war, going on with the Soviet Union. And 
a police action in Korea. Despite all that, it was a fairly quiet period, which brings us to 1960, uh, the period often referred to as Camelot, or the presidency uh, of one John Fitzgerald Kennedy uh, and his ever so effortlessly glamorous uh, wife, Jacqueline Bouvier Kennedy, who really dominated a sort of cultural landscape where things were good. This did not last so long because in 1963, President Kennedy was assassinated. Uh, and even before that, three months into his presidency, uh, there was an incident that brought us as close to nuclear annihilation as we've ever come with the Bay of Pigs incident. And I think this really dominated people's fears in a, in a way that there was a kind of unsettling period that led to, uh, well, it led, it, his assassination took place and then I think things changed very significantly. I'm trying to hit some high points in this timeline and I see from this point on there really is a sense of resistance and a, a counterculture dominated by a desire to make things better but also to no longer accept business as usual. Um, one of the, the major moments, I think, was the Civil Rights Movement, which actually began uh, on December 1st, 1955, almost 10 years earlier than the period I'm trying to locate now, when one Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus, give up her seat to a, to a white uh, gentleman. And uh, the Civil Rights Movement, in great measure, was led in the 60s by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and in 1964, the Civil Rights Act was passed. So there was a concerted, dominant, hard-fought, community-based, but also legislative attempt to reverse years of uh, systematic racism and legislation that created segregation. Um, Out West, Mario Savio was leading this free speech movement. This took place in 1964, and on December 2nd, and I'm, my alma mater is Berkeley, so I've never been more proud of my fellow alumni than I am of the 4,000 people who on December 2nd attended uh, a rally uh, that Mario Savio spoke at. Um, it's interesting that of the 4,000 assembled in Sproul Plaza, 800 were arrested. So it was a contentious moment. Here's what Mario Savio said. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. This is one of those critical moments in the history of the 60s where people simply said no, no more business as usual. You know, we had been at war 
this sort of quiet little war going on in Southeast Asia for a number of years at this, this point, but following in the, in the heels of the free speech movement came the two, two events. One was the anti-war movement characterized by uh, SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society, a very active and uh, demonstrative uh, student body, and also by the Summer of Love, in 1967 when uh, LSD, among other things, a drug that Harvard researcher uh, Timothy Leary had experimented with, and you probably, many of you may remember, his exhortation to tune in, turn on, drop out. An interesting parallel, I think, with what Mario Savio was saying, it, things simply needed to stop. Um, I'm not sure how my time is, but I'll just stop with 1968. I think arguably the 60s peaked in a frenzied, exhilarating 1968. Robert Francis Kennedy, a candidate for the Democratic Party nomination for president, was assassinated in uh, June, the night he won the California primary. Two months earlier, Dr. King had met a similar fate uh, assassinated by the racist uh, James Earl Ray in Memphis. At Columbia University, uh, students occupied the administration building. Uh, that was a spectacular event. Uh, they were calling for an end to the war and to better relations with the then poor community that surrounded uh, Columbia. In France, the events known as May 68, uh, that was initially led by student protests resulted in 11 million French workers conducting an active two-week-long strike. So they went on strike, but they occupied the factories where they normally worked. Well, I'll end with this, that an ocean and a continent away from France the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California demanded nothing less with a 10-point program that included community control of the police, free health care for black and oppressed people, and an immediate end to all wars of aggression. I really see all of these social movements as the context uh, that provided the foundation for an explosion of creativity in the arts, in music with people like Phil Oakes, Bob Dylan, and the Grateful Dead, to Robert Rauschenberg's EAT, Experiments in Art and Technology Project, to Judith Molina and Julian Beck's hopelessly inspiring living theater, and to scores of films by brilliant independent and mainstream filmmakers. A thousand flowers bloomed. And I very much look forward to hearing what uh, my colleagues on this panel have to say. Thank you, John. That's Thank a, you. It's a, it's a, it takes us to, to a good place here. Thank you. And, and I think it gives us a, a good intro to what we might uh, hear from Lisa. Lisa, I'd like to ask you about some of what was happening in Europe in the same period. And you can go back as far as you like post-war. Just start right around the mid-60s. Yeah, well, thank you. And thank you so much for putting this panel mm -hmm. together. Um, the, the movements that we think of as, as the counterculture really international in scope, um, particularly bringing in Western Europeans and North Americans, 
Um, so we heard a little bit about France as well as a great deal about the United States. Um, but international exchange was a very important part of this. Um, everybody listened to the Rolling Stones. It didn't really matter where you were. Um, the notion of what, what, what constituted countercultural fashions, for example, was a very transatlantic one, um, disseminated by film, uh, by advertising, by consumer culture, and so on and so forth. And there was a lot of travel, uh, a lot of, um, by, by the time we're talking about, many, many thousands of European students on various student exchange programs had spent a semester a year in the United States and vice versa. So um, young people actually knew each other across borders much, much more than they had in previous generations um, in a personal way as well as kind of an immediated way um, by the dissemination of culture. But still, every, Move, every, every countercultural movement had a bit of local flavor. Um, and uh, the, the importance, for example, of the Black Panthers in the United States reflected very much the racial history of the United States. In a place like West Germany, um, there, were, there was the, the unique history of, of one generation earlier, Nazism, Nazi National Socialism. And um, many young people were aware that their parents had maybe reap some of the benefits of that regime before it met a bad end, perhaps supported it, or perhaps not. Um, but they were coming to terms with very complicated personal histories and across Western Europe as well, even in a place like France, questions about possible collaboration um, versus national myths of resistance um, were very alive during this period. And there's a, a sort of a unique flavor here. Um, going back even further, um, for, for West Germans involved in countercultural movements. The example of the interwar period of, of Weimar culture was very, very alive to them, a real sort of hotbed of alternative politics and alternative cultures. And I'm, we'll talk more about that, I guess, later on in the second half hour. But again, it gives us a sense of how we have both sort of local variations and a lot of international communication. Um, in Europe, as well as in America, we can think of, of this era as encompassing two overlapping but not quite identical movements. One is a movement of radical politics, um, of, of, in some cases, new radical political parties, of, of autonomous politics, uh, of student radicals, of, of actions such as occupying university buildings. Uh, these were very influential. A relatively small number of people actually personally took part in radical politics, but nevertheless, these were very serious uh, political critiques of, of the, way th the way things had been running for the last couple of decades, at, at the very least. Um, a much larger movement in terms of actual participation is what we might sort of call you know, alternative lifestyles, and when we think of the counterculture, um, thinking of everything from from communes to to music to recreational drug use um, to um, new forms of not new forms but new forms of open se sexual expression, um, a lot much more sexual activity outside of marriage that was kind of upfront. Um, we have the establishment of of new sort of anti-institutional institutions, so daycare centers that were sort of run on anti-authoritarian pedagogical principles and so on and so forth. The idea being here to really kind of not just challenge the political powers that be, but to create a new, a new person, a new kind of subjectivity. And 
Um, people involved in the counterculture at the time often uh, used the word authenticity, the search for a personal authenticity, the search for an authentic community, and the feeling that many of the institutions that this generation had grown up with, um, whether this was uh, or the organized religion, that you know, the, the, the churches they'd attended as young people, the schools they'd attended, the workplaces they knew, that these, that consumer culture was a big culprit here of manipulation, of, of, of creating an inauthentic person, a person whose job it was to fill a niche, whether it was in society or a niche within the family with very strict gendered and generational roles and so forth. And this search for authenticity um, was a very important theme in the counterculture. You might find that authenticity by losing yourself in a new kind of music. You might find that authenticity by recreational drug use. You might find that authenticity by living in an apartment with other people your age without your families. Okay, it's a very new way of living, um, the commune, but not necessarily with an explicit political objective, but rather simply the idea of, of having a community of peers that was trying to, to sort of create create a new, a new kind of personal world, as well as perhaps um, challenge the political structures that be. Um, so we see this flurrying of activity, um, you know, the creation of, you know, of, of projects. People talked about being involved in projects and your project might be a band or it might be to found a youth center or it might be to found and participate in an artist's collective. Um, and very much about creating a space to experience and nurture in other people as well this kind of new subjectivity. Oh, thank you. Well, that, that's again a natural lead-in because with art, um, Boreka, uh, who comes from the world of theater and performance and so on, um, uh, Lisa just mentioned these artistic communities that, that grew at this time. Uh, what can you tell us about what's happening in, in theater and performance in this period? Um, <clears throat> well, in the 1950s, and before, it's um, easy to forget that the, uh, the, pr the professional theater in the United States was centered almost entirely around Broadway. I mean, there, were, there was a thing called the Little Theater Movement earlier in the century where small theaters that produced, for example, the early works of Eugene O'Neill and the Provincetown Playhouse theaters like that had been founded to try to create alternatives to Broadway. But those gradually morphed into um, what we now think of as community theaters. And by the 1950s, still Broadway was the hallmark of kind of uh, professional success in the theater. Um, and that's what everyone aspired to. And that's what most theater, most theater training was aimed at, um, getting everyone to aspire to. In the 50s, there was an off-Broadway theater movement, uh, one of the first attempts to get away um, from the commercial strictures of Broadway and to a different way of producing plays that might not um, subject them to issues of commercial success. So some of the works of Eugene O'Neill, for example, were produced in, uh, in the 50s at um, Circle in the Square in New York, which was one of the primary off-Broadway theaters. Um, uh, by the time we get to the 60s, we really begin to get into an off-off Broadway theater movement. Um, and this entails, um, as it did with off-Broadway, not only moving geographically out of the zone of Broadway literally in New York, but um, metaphorically moving out of the zone of Broadway in terms of how work is produced. And the off-off Broadway um, theaters that were founded in the 60s were very much focused on um, 
doing the first American premieres of European work by absurdist playwrights like Beckett, for example, um, doing the first productions of Brecht in America, um, doing experiments with Antonin Artaud, um, whose work was very little known. Um, and probably the, the furthest off off Broadway you could get was going downtown in New York to groups like uh, the Living Theater and the Open Theater uh, and the La Mama Experimental Theater Club, which was founded by um, the wonderful Ellen Stewart, who just recently passed away. And these were theaters that were devoted not only to kind of importing uh, what were to the American theater new ideas about theater from Europe, but also creating American work, US work, that was um, formally and aesthetically experimental. And um, the move away from Broadway here is not only literally downtown to the, to the village and the East Village, but it's moving out of traditional theater spaces into lofts and warehouses and people's apartments. And it's about creating the, um, uh, a theater ensemble as a kind of commune where members of the open theater and the living theater, for example, lived and lived together, ate together, exchanged sexual partners. Um, they had this idea of um, their theater ensemble as a kind of social ideal, a communal ideal. Um, um, so that was one very important direction. Um, Related to that is the notion that the, the whole way in which theater was, what theater was and how it was made was changing with these groups. They were not interested in conventional plays and producing plays in a conventional way. They were interested in collaboratively creating work that mattered, that spoke to the times. Um, um, so the process was different. Um, and they were interested in really breaking the bounds between uh, performer and audience. So this is kind of the great period of um, audience participation and challenging the audience to come up on stage and participate in the rituals that are being dramatized. Um, they had a very different relation to dramatic text than traditional theaters had had. Some theaters, like the open theater, were more interested in creating plays that you could read on the page, but creating them with a lot of influence from the collaborative group. And I'll be talking more about the open theater um, later because we have a clip from a uh, discussion of The Serpent, they're probably their most famous piece. Um, but the Living Theater is um, an interesting case in point because they were founded earlier in the late 1940s um, and were initially devoted to doing new interpretations of classic work and doing productions of modern verse plays by writers like Eliot and Auden. Um, and then they continued to experiment through the 50s, and in 1959, one of their breakthrough works was a play called The Connection by Jack Gelber, which was a sort of hyper-naturalistic play about a group of junkies waiting for their connection in a flop house. Um, so they went in that kind of very naturalistic direction, which was to some extent true to the dominant American theater of the time, since naturalism was, was and psychological realism was the major thing at the time in writers like O'Neill and, and Miller and Williams but they really pushed the envelope on that. Then they did a play in the early 60s called The Brig, which was about um, life in a uh, military prison, also done very naturalistically. Um, but they moved away from doing plays to creating theater events that were, were ritualistically based and that were designed to engage the audience and kind of awaken their awareness of social issues, but not just social issues, they weren't sort of conventional, dogmatic, political plays, they were interested in like rehearsing the revolution was kind of the idea. So um, their most, probably their, their biggest 
most famous piece in terms of their legacy was a piece called um, Paradise Now, which I understand John actually saw. <laughs> um, and um, this was a, a long, long event um, that drew upon various religious and sacred traditions to create a series of rites and rituals that the, the living theater would perform and they would gradually kind of um, induct the audience into the event and bring them up on the stage. And it included um, taking off one's clothes, it included um, smoking pot on stage, it included, these are just the juicier details, um, and not necessarily Sometimes when I teach the living theater, it all gets boiled down to that for my students. It's like, oh, well, this was just a theater that liked to have sex and smoke pot, right? No, that's not, <laughs> that's not what it was that was part of it. Um, um, and did actually involve sexual intercourse between members of the audience and the performers um, at times mm -hmm. in certain performances. I don't know if that was true of the event that you saw, John. <laughs> we'll but um, until later on. But the, the whole idea part. was to um, create this kind of new paradise in the theater space that you would then take out into the world. Um, and there were cases where they went out into the world and were arrested for indecent exposure and this yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so that's actually a little more detail about the living theater than I intended to go into, but um, the overall theme here was moving off Broadway, not only geographically, physically, but spiritually into new ways of making work, new ways of living in relation to making the work, and, and, and new content too, new content and form. Um, and the European connection here is that it was, a lot of it was done very much in the, the spirit of the influence of figures like Brecht and Artaud. Um, and to a lesser extent with groups like the Living Theater Beckett, but this, this idea of the experimental avant-garde, um, Europe was the model for that because there had been some inroads made in terms of the avant-garde in earlier American theater, some influence of expressionism on, again, O'Neill um, in some of his plays, but in terms of the, the modernist avant-garde as a, a model for how to create work for the U.S. theater, um, this was really quite radical at the time. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks. As you say, we'll, we'll go into mm -hmm. some detail with some of these things a little bit later on. And and a very sort of quick overview of, of art life in America and the world, Kathy, before we really focus seriously on Lil Picard, um, tell us what was happening 50s, 60s, going up to this period around 1970. Well, I think of uh, the counterculture as coming out of the beat culture. Mm -hmm. um, certainly a literary focus there um, and abstract expressionism, both of which uh, were very macho um, uh, movements. And the counterculture, again, um, focusing a bit on, on the art, um, tended to be you know, in reaction uh, to, to that. Um, and again, you know, this desire to disrupt and reject and therefore liberate involving freeing um, uh, access to institutions for, for female artists, for black artists. Um, you know, it was redefining uh, who an artist was, what they could be, what materials they could use, um, and what art meant. Mm -hmm. um, here you have in, in, in beat culture and in abstract expressionism um, this very sort of modern moving into postmodern um, 
type of expression which tended to be ab abstract and tended to not um, be necessarily coded with the personal uh, identi identity of the of the author or the artist, um, and and really, I think what starts to happen is that there's this focus on personal self-realization, and in the art, in the making, in the experiencing, in the in the in the weaving of art and life, and it certainly, I think, does come out of European traditions. Um, Picard having you know spent ten years or so in Berlin and Weimar. Um, Berlin as a cabaret actress and in cafe society. Um, uh, she moved from that reality and experience through the war years, um, through the 50s, and then, you know, bursts on the scene with a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, well, so thank you. That was Kathy Edwards, and you've also heard Art Barreca and Lisa Heinemann and John Wynette. At the far end of, of our group here is Sean O'Hara, who is the uh, recently appointed director of the University of Iowa Museum of Art, and congratulations on that, and thank you, thank you for joining thank us, Sean. And um, before we go into real detail about uh, Lil Picard, I'd like you to, re to, to just tell us a little bit about what your philosophy is regarding uh, the role of a university museum uh, in, you know, in 2011. Uh, uh, this is a very sort of unique retrospective about uh, Lil Picard, and it's one of many exhibitions you'll be putting on over the years. Uh, tell us about your views. Sure. Um, an art museum is an educational institution, and it uses uh, visual elements uh, primarily to communicate those ideas. Um, a university art museum is uh, an educational institution within the university environment, and uh, um, is, its purpose is to uh, challenge people to um, uh, push the boundaries of understanding and, uh, and comprehension. And uh, an exhibition like Lil Picard, which you know, features an artist who is perhaps less than well known in many ways, um, is the sort of vehicle that a university museum uses in order to teach students uh, uh, about uh, areas of culture that they perhaps uh, uh, knew very little about. And, um, and so I would say that uh, you know, an art museum has that, uh, that uh, unique ability to communicate. Um, it's, it's a passive, it's a relatively passive experience. So uh, when um, viewers come into the institution, um, you know, they are presented with material. And of course, they don't necessarily choose to look at and understand things necessarily. The stuff is presented to them. And so they are, um, so they are in many ways uh, um, forced to view this information. And this is, this is what makes uh, um, museums interesting because mm -hmm. um, because people are are, are um, comprehending uh, and and uh, and looking at material that uh, is presented to them uh, in many ways and uh, of course there is an aspect of museums that is uh, you know entertaining which of course is one way of um, of, of educating I think the uh, the commonplace term these days is edutainment but. Uh, um, at least as a university art museum, um, we have a, a, a mission that is uh, directly tied to uh, university courses and uh, other material provided by professors uh, and teachers in order to, um, to teach students about these new areas of understanding. Yeah, yeah. Was Lil Picard someone you had encountered before you, you came here and, uh, and uh, assumed this position knowing this exhibit was well, coming? Um, 
Not, not entirely, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I do know that uh, uh, that Lil Picard was a uh, was part of a major uh, donation to the university. And uh, again, this is what makes uh, University Museum very interesting: is that um, we have a lot of material in the university that has yet to be presented. Lil mm-hmm. Picard is one uh, fascinating example of of a of a, a massive donation of material, and uh, it was because of this. Uh, uh, benefaction that uh, our curators were allowed to research and to present this material to mm-hmm. the uh, to the student population and the staff. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. terrific. Well, so for for just now, I'd like to excuse John Wynette and Art Bereka until a little later in the show and bring up Sid Hudner and Dale Fisher, who will tell us a little bit more about this uh, uh, connection with Lil Picard. Uh, please give these guys a hand. Huh? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Uh, we're now going to take a personal excursion into the counterculture by looking at the life and work of this person we've been mentioning in the last few minutes, a 20th century feminist artist and critic, Lil Picard. She was born in Germany in 1899 and worked as a cabaret actress, an accessories designer, and a journalist in the avant-garde art scene of 1930s Berlin before leaving Germany for the U.S. in 1937. And for the next six decades, she led a rich life working both as a journalist and as an artist in New York City, moving in the circle of Andy Warhol, Carolee Schneemann, Ad Reinhardt, and their contemporaries. The works in Picard's estate, as Sean just mentioned, as well as personal letters and diaries and photographs, were given to the UI in 1999, and they are forming the basis of the uh, Museum of Art's upcoming exhibit, Lil Picard and Counterculture New York. Um, please let me introduce the two people who have just joined us. Sid Hutner is with the University of Iowa Libraries. He's the head of Special Collections, and thank you for coming. Thank you. And uh, Dale Fisher is the Education Director at the Museum of Art. Hey, Dale, thanks. And so uh, you are here joining our other guests for a, sort of a, an introduction to what people will be able to view in February when this Lil Picard exhibit opens. Kathy, I'll go to you, I think, first. To, you're the head curator uh, at the museum and uh, really the very personal organizer of, of this exhibit with the help of others here at the university. And um, um, tell us how you got involved in her work. Well, as you mentioned, and as Sean mentioned, the gift came to the university in 1999, and uh, there was a period of negotiation, and and actually something quite extraordinary happened where uh, the special collections, the UI libraries and the art museum decided to divide the collection. The Lil Picard papers would go to special collections, and Lil Picard's art would go to the museum, and I don't think that they're was a precedent for that kind of collaborative project. Um, Over 700 works by Picard came into the art museum. Um, A few of them were put out um, on view, um, and I became fascinated with the material and went through a period of really about a year. And Joan, you mentioned staff, and I just wanted to mention my assistant, Nathan Pop and our installation uh, uh, head, Steve Erickson, and our registrar, uh, Jeff Martin. It was really through their uh, assistance that we were able to go through all of this work, photograph it, um, and for me to make my selections for the exhibition, store it, et cetera. Um, Speaking about um, museums, past, present, and future, storage is, uh, and cataloging, um, is a you know a primary and making the collection accessible is a primary goal and we were able to pull out out of a 
out of a hat, sort of, this rabbit um, called Lil Picard in Counterculture New York after having been flooded. Um, and the show opened in New York last April. So it's um, a testimony to everyone at the museum. Um, as I mentioned, there are quite a few number of works in the art collection. There are about 60 in the show. And I spent quite a lot of time, obviously, in the papers um, trying to put together Lil Picard's story. And um, I can go into that a little bit further after Sid um, tells us about the papers a bit, but um, it really um, is an incredible collection and in that Picard used the stories of her life as the material in her work. So in a way, both these collections, the papers and the art, really cross-reference uh, each other. Um, and it's been a wonderful uh, collaboration with Special Collections. Well, well, we can go to Sid, and, and I hope that he and you will both tell us a little bit about the personality of Lil Picard that is revealed through these letters, through the audio clips you have, through some of the art that's done, because she, she must have been a lot of fun. Uh, she does seem to have been uh, quite a character. I think Kathy at this point knows much more about it, uh, about that aspect of her life than I do, <clears throat> since I, I'm left with the artifacts and mm -hmm. I'm not quite so close to the person. Um, why are they here? Uh, shortly after the exhibit opened in New York, I had an email from a, uh, a woman who had obviously been to the opening of the exhibit and uh, must have found my address on our website. And uh, her question was, uh, how is it possible that those papers are all in Iowa? And if they are really in Iowa, why is it that nobody in New York knows they're there? And I wrote back fairly gently and, and tried to say, well, perhaps the parameters of your question are, are their own answer. Uh, but the last few days in preparation for this, I've been trying to research our files a bit uh, to update myself. Um, I arrived at the end of January of 1999 to become head of special collections at the libraries. Uh, and uh, one of the first collections that came in uh, later that year, I think probably in August or, or uh, September, were about uh, 90 uh, linear feet of the Picard papers. Um, before that, I had a little bit to do. They were offered to us uh, by her three executors, and there were some question about the terms of the, of the um, uh, of the deposit, so we had to sort that out. Uh, but in going back over it, I don't think, there, while there are some mysteries associated with, with the papers being in Iowa, I don't think there, uh, it was in any way at all an accident. Um, in uh, 1966, Hans Breeder had come, uh, had established the, uh, uh, well, I'm not sure he established, but had certainly uh, given some vigor to the intermediate program. Uh, Wallace Tomasini was head of the School of Art and Art History and was a very aggressive uh, dean. Uh, and in 1978, um, uh, there was an international conference on campus uh, devoted to Dada, uh, organized largely by uh, Rudolf uh, Kunzli uh, in comparative literature and uh, Stephen Foster in the School of Art and Art History. Uh, the consensus of that conference was that some institution in the world ought to take responsibility for, uh, for creating a major archival collection of Dada materials. 
originally it was apparently intended that that would be the University of, of uh, Milwaukee, uh, University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee. But one of the key players there died uh, shortly after the conference, uh, rather unexpectedly, and it, and it came back to Iowa to, um, um, to take that role. Uh, so a research center uh, for Dada was set up in 1979. And in 1992, the same two key players, Kunzli and Foster, uh, established something that uh, was called the Alternative Traditions in Contemporary Art. And the point of that was to be a vigorous, aggressive uh, attempt to document um, uh, the successor movements, uh, the countercultural movements in the art world uh, from uh, the end of World War II uh, up to the, to the present. And that very aggressive initiative was largely led by a, a woman, Esther Millman, who served as the director of, of that program until uh, 2000, a little after 2000. Uh, so that throughout the 1980s, it was a very large number of exhibitions. She was very successful at getting any age programs. And my guess is that somewhere along in there, Lil Picard uh, recognized that Iowa was probably unique in collecting all of these documentary materials, going back into the very early Dada uh, period, but then coming all the way up to the present. Uh, and I suspect that she made up her own mind that having no children, having no institution that was coming to her looking for her mm -hmm. papers, mm -hmm. uh, that this was probably the best place in the world to see them go. Um, so she died in 1994. Uh, her last few decade or so apparently were fairly grim. She was uh, blind and she was uh, increasingly reclusive. Um, but she uh, left a, an estate and three executors. It took the executors at least four years to, um, um, to uh, execute their, uh, their legal obligations. And so it was not until 1999 that we actually got the papers. Mm -hmm. uh, but since then, they've been discovered, uh, uh, not first by, by Kathy, although mm -hmm. Kathy is certainly the most extensive user. Mm -hmm. And so, so they serve as research uh, material for, for anybody here at this university or anyone who wants to do research through this university related to this period, anybody interested in Lopicard oh, yes. era, this is all open uh, through special collections. Yes, the inventory is online. And, uh, we were able to use the executor's notes uh, to create a pretty thorough inventory within a, a year or so of the arrival of the papers. Uh, there's still some bits and pieces that need to be cleaned up after, uh, after another 10 years. But uh, the vast bulk of the collection has been open and it's been used. Yeah. Uh, there's a recent biography of Patricia Highsmith, uh, the uh, novelist, uh, and uh, uh, she had been a close and sustaining friend of um, uh, Picard's from the late 1940s. Uh, and uh, some of the liveliest chapters of Heisman's rather strange life um, uh, come directly out of the long correspondence that's in the papers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, so, Kathy, you're familiar with an awful lot of this material as well as the actual art pieces, and unfortunately we aren't able to, to have any of the art with us here today to look at, but can you describe some of the pieces that will be in the exhibit coming up? Sure. It's... Um Picard really started making art um, in the 40s after she had uh, come with her second husband. Uh, and Picard is actually the last name of her first husband, who she met, I'm just going back in time a bit, met in the Strasbourg area where she grew up. Her, her parents were wine merchants. And of course, at the end of World War I, it, the place was a madhouse. There were uh, 
um, and in fact, there were Marxists coming to sign up new members, and she and Fritz Picard joined the Marxist party and ran off to Berlin, where she was uh, an actress in cabarets, but she actually wrote little uh, short pieces about culture. She was an active journalist, um, and she was very influenced by Brechtian theater, um, and, but was forced to give up her press pass because she was Jewish. So in 37, they fled Berlin. Um, she opened an accessory shop on Madison Avenue in New York in 39 called DeLille. And she made her own jewelry and hats. And the archive, the papers have these amazing ads from Vogue and Bazaar of these crazy hats, you know, big Magritte lips and keyboard <laughs> keys. Um, and those types of um, uh, items are in the papers. And the way you can actually see them is through the website that we created uh, in place of an exhibition catalog which is, um, if you just type in lilpicard.org or go to the art museum website, uima.uiowa.edu, you can access this quite extensive website which interrelates her writing um, um, because she was a very active journalist. Um, she translated Tom Wolfe's Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. She was very close to many different authors and, and writers. Um, the work itself sort of starts out, I think of it as being very related to Hans Hoffmann. It's kind of this common, this kind of explosion of Hans Hoffmann's color theory, push-pull compositions. Um, but then there's this kind of figurative element embedded in it. Um, so she's, she's reacting to sort of abstract expressionism and, and color field painting, but she's kind of throwing in personal references, so as you follow, um, even the titles of her work uh, refer to travels in Europe because, you know, she uh, and her husband went back to Germany, you know, as early as the 50s and traveled quite a bit. Um, she performed there. Um, she wrote uh, for German art magazines like uh, Kunstforum about American pop artists and sort of introduced American pop art to a German audience. So she played this really unusual role um, in, that, in that way. And then um, Art was mentioning that uh, some of these uh, early performance works were done in people's homes. In fact, that's where she um, did her performances until 1965. Her first performance was at Cafe Agogo. She was 65 years old, um, and you know that was quite a different um, kind of, um, of performance to see uh, at a time when very young uh, female performance artists like Carolee Schneeman and Yoko Ono, uh, Yoya Kusama, um, Hannah Wilkie, Charlotte Moorman, um, and and many of them think of Lil as this role model. She really just had no fear. Um, so she started performing, and she was um, a regular at the factory. In fact, I have, um, Mike, I think I have a, a conversation between Lil and Andy Warhol, if we could play that. Um, it's from a little bit later in the 70s, but she and Warhol were very close. She wrote for Interview, um, which was 
Looking for Andrew, the, the name of Interview Magazine when it first started, it was really a film journal and she wrote very early on, so she was very close to Warhol. Do we have it? So Lil is calling Andy on the phone. <laughs> from the North German radio station. Uh -huh. And he's doing since yesterday a big interview on my life uh -huh. with me for six hours yesterday. Uh -huh. And I told him <laughs> a lot about you too and what role you played. He will come with me. He okay, is a gorgeous well, guy and he wants to interview okay, you. He's tall and has a beard and very elegant. Okay. And I see you there. Okay. And I will be I will wear a big, big wig. Oh, again? What, really? oh, yes, I did a performance. Oh. And the performance will was... I be able to recognize you? You will, oh. because I tell you what it is. Mm -hmm. Because you have, you know, I read that you had, you have designed something with apricots. It's a, a dress you can need right off the girl. That's right. And you know what I wore for my performance? What? I wore a white wig with parsley in. What? You know what parsley is? Parsley? Parsley. Parsley, you eat it. Yeah. It's green. It in your, in your my whole wig is studded with parsley. Oh, really? You can eat from my wig tonight. Oh, great. So you will see me with my parsley wig. <coughs> okay. I did a performance with you that. Your wig. What? You eat your wig. And I eat your apricots. Okay. Okay? okay. I see you. Okay? Bye. Yeah. Bye. Bye bye. <laughs> so parsley wig. So parsley Warhol. wig. Yeah. Yeah, um, and one of her major uh, performances actually was, took place at the factory uh, and was filmed and is included in Eddie Warhol's Four Stars, his film Four Stars, um, but it's a, it's a kind of a critique, it's an action event sort of installation uh, destroying the Vietnam War. So she, she used um, a method called destruction art, which also came from Europe, and it, and it was used by a lot of artists who, you know, had to flee Europe. Um, it was uh, perceived, I think, and we'll get a little bit more into that uh, later, it was per perceived oftentimes as really violent and, and vulgar, but in fact it was critiquing those very things in terms of um, the war uh, uh, and prior wars. Oh, was there something further you wanted to say? Or well, I, I thought maybe we could play the second yeah. tape then. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, which is uh, some of uh, Picard's, um, Picard is reading a, a part of her script for an installation in 1965 called 1965, 2065, 2165. And it's actually a critique of uh, the beauty industry. Um, it was an installation 
um, but there was a, a, an action event or a happening that took place uh, periodically throughout the six weeks or so that this environment was set up in the gallery. So we'll play um, a few minutes of that for you. Beauty, beauty, beauty. Super Mac goddess, Super Mac Venus, suspended on the pedestal of jazz-drunk lipstick cloud of veilings and cotton, white plastic heaven of the new front paradise. Wash up, good girl. Bright the waves with record players, curlers and powder life. You'll hear all of these and see all of this at the exhibition. Um, and again, her work was very whimsical. Um, she used a lot of wordplay, which is also a method that surrealists and Dadaists, neo-Dadaists, uh, flexus artists used. Um, her work could be very funny. It can be understood at multiple levels. Um, I think the, the show will, um, you know, feel different from um, a regular museum installation in that it's multimedia. Uh, there are also two films by Sylviana Goldsmith about Picard. Um, one is more of a documentary, so that will be helpful to audiences, and the other is um, really more of, a, um, of an artist's film, uh, comes out of her uh, 75th birthday party at the Rene Block uh, Gallery. She was also in a lot of films. The, the um, filmmaker Ulrike Olinger, who uh, just had a, um, um, an overview of her, a survey of her films at the Louvre this past April, um, Lil was in a number of her films when she would visit her um, in, in Germany and in France. And I got a really nice note from her when the, when the show opened. Um, so I think the exhibition will be very engaging on a number of levels, and I feel that students will be able to make connections, as John mentioned, with um, the counterculture of the, of the past and some of the similar sorts of um, experiences students are having today. Mm -hmm. Thank you, and, and, uh, and Dale, I know you can fill us in on some of the uh, particular uh, sort of the additional or adjunct events that you'll have during the period of the exhibit. Would you, would you be able to share some of that with us? Sure, you bet. Um, one of the things that I wanted to mention too is I'm taking this, I'm reading this from the University of Iowa Museum of Art magazine, so uh, there are copies of it back there so you can pick up the schedule of programs for the semester uh, and uh, if you don't get it tonight you can visit us at the IMU on the third floor in our gallery space and uh, get a copy of it there as well as looking at it on the website. Um, the first thing I wanted to mention was a series of films that uh, uh, David Harvey and Andrew Ritchie put together, uh, students in the Department of Cinema and Complet. There are six nights of films between March 1st and April 15th and uh, the title of the whole series is called Rights of Resistance, Gender, Performance, Art, and Film in the 60s and 70s. And, uh, and they were great to work with, mainly, you know, basically they just came up with a series of topics 
and found the films and located them. Basically, all I did was the requisition forms <laughs> and ordered them, you know, so all credit to them, and you'll get to talk to them in a moment about yeah. that part of our programming. Um, on March 2nd, Carolee Schneeman is visiting to do an artist talk at the University Athletic Club, and uh, she's going to come and discuss her body of work, which is... Uh, very literal. Her body of work is a very little <laughs> literal description of uh, her art process with uh, names like Bloodwork Diary and Interior Scroll and things from the 70s. Um, she literally incorporated herself physically into these performance pieces mm -hmm. and uh, there's some really interesting documentation of it as well and discussing her talk with her was really insightful, so her talk should be great as well. Uh, and that's at the University Athletic Club on March 2nd. Then the uh, public reception for the Little Picard exhibition will be at the main lounge at the Iowa Memorial Union, and uh, it goes from 7 to 9 that night, and Carolee Schneeman is staying around in town for that, so not only can you hear her the night before, you can meet her and everything the next night. Um, then at the end of March, on March 34th, Kathy Edwards, curator, will give her gallery talk. And uh, the idea of a gallery talk as opposed to an artist talk, it's a little bit different because she will, Kathy will be going through the gallery and discussing the works and answering questions and things right on the spot. And, uh, and as the folks who work in museums believe, there's no substitute for looking at the actual work of art. So there's a good chance to do that and ask questions at the same time. Then on April 7th, let's go back a year. Um, last spring, I was reading the New Yorker magazine and thinking about programming for the Little Picard exhibition. And in the January 2010 uh, New Yorker, I don't remember the exact date, but it was January 2010, there was an article by Lewis Menand uh, on Andy Warhol and the factory. And I was reading this and, and he was uh, so evocative in his writing about what the factory was and what the counterculture in 1960s New York was that uh, I just kind of, you know, tuned Andy Warhol out a little bit and called him and asked him if he'd be willing to come and give a talk. So. Um, He's doing our Betty Spreestersbach Distinguished Lecture on April 7th at uh, Papa John Auditorium over here. So, um, so Louis Menand from Harvard in the uh, Department of English and American Literature and Pulitzer Prize winner in history and so on is gonna come and uh, do a presentation on counterculture in New York. And those are our programs that we have with the exhibition. Um, going on, but you know, first and foremost, please come to the third floor of the IMU and see the exhibition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that was Dale Fisher. And um, Lisa, before we, we leave this little discussion here, I know that you aren't, uh, you, said, you said that you really don't want to be put on the spot in respect to the actual art or the artist, because that's not your specialty, but the the environment from which Lil Picard would have come before she left Germany, and then those German audiences she would have been writing articles for in the 60s and 70s. Uh, can you tell us something about uh, who those audiences were? 
Well, I think what's so in, one of the things that's so interesting um, about her is that she's kind of a twofold translator. She's sort of a translator across space, you know, writing about the New York art scene for German readers um, in, in the 60s and 70s. Um, but she's also kind of a translator across time, right? Yeah. Because she's bringing this experience. I mean, she was an adult when World War I ended. Um, she has this career as a, as a cabarettist. Um, she's a journalist already in, in 1920s Germany. So she's coming from this environment that likewise kind of mingled this, this burst of political radicalism. Germany had a revolution in 1919. Um, the socialist and communist parties were both very major, major forces in the political scene. Um, and at the same time, there's this real flourishing of artistic activity not because Germans had suddenly become more interesting people than they had been 10 years ago, but among other reasons, because the censorship laws had been lifted. Um, so there's a sort of a political history behind that as well. So part of what you get in the 1920s in a space like the cabaret is um, the ability to express a very sharp political critique, which you couldn't have done under the Kaiser, and it also to take off your clothes. Um, so so the, the, the removal of censorship had implications, in a sense, for, for, the, the, for, the, for the political and also, in a sense, for the, for the cultural, if you want to separate those two out, which you probably really shouldn't. Um, but she's bringing that experience and then the experience of reflecting on it as a journalist. So she's already writing about it. She's sort of doing that little stepping back, writing about it as a kind of a participant, observer, reporter. Um, and then bringing that with her, so by the time she gets to, you know, she becomes a, a figure four decades later in New York, um, she's, she's got this kind of other world of experience to bring with her um, and, and to encounter um, a younger generation yeah. with it and then to bring that younger generation's experience and creativity back over the sea um, to, to report on this in the German art mm -hmm. world. Um, so she this, this, this ability to kind of move between those two worlds, both in time and space, I think is such an interesting part of the story. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, thanks to all of you in, in this segment. Um, Sean O'Hara, lovely to have you here. And uh, Dale Fisher and Kathy uh, Edwards, I'd like you to stay, please. And Lisa Heinemann will call you up a little bit later. And Sid Hutner, thank you so much. Please give our guests a warm hand. Thank you. As our next guests come up, uh, if you have just joined us, this is World Canvas from International Programs. I'm Joan Kerr, and our topic tonight is the counterculture of the 60s and 70s. If you'd like to hear this program again, there are numerous places in which you'll be able to find it on cable systems around the state, thanks to our friends and partners at UITV, on our local UI radio station, KRUI-FM, which is broadcasting the program right now, on Iowa Public Radio statewide, and on the free internet listening site, the Public Radio Exchange. Please look for broadcast times and locations at the International Programs website, international.uiowa.edu. So I think we're all, all set for this uh, next segment now where we're going to discuss the counterculture's influence on the dominant culture, on popular culture, film, music, and performance art, probably concentrating generally uh, here on the States, but, um, but internationally as well. Uh, and so in this segment, we have, you must be David Harvey. We haven't met yet. Hi. David Harvey from Cinema and Comparative Literature. And I know that you worked on the film series, uh, setting that all up. And, and we're also going to talk a little bit about gender and sexuality and as represented on film. So thanks for being here. Andrew Ritchie, also a graduate student in Cinema and Comparative Literature. Thanks for coming, Andrew. Hi. Thank you. Hi. And uh, Kathy, and you know John Winnett and Art Baraka. So um, David, let me go to you first. Uh, maybe you and Andrew together 
together can tell us a little bit about this film series you've put together. Uh, uh, lots of interesting stuff coming up here, and, and perhaps you can describe the, the film series and, and set it in a context for us. Sure, well, thank you for the compliment. Kathy came to our department and asked after uh, PhD students with interest in feminism and the avant-garde. And those are both things that Andrew and I are interested in, me more in the feminism. As men. As men, <laughs> <right>. yeah. <laughs> As men, broadly defined. Yes. Um, we're, we're both interested in, and we knew that the kind of, um, the linchpin for this was, of course, Lil Picard, but we were coming at it more broadly in terms of uh, the culture that surrounded Lil Picard and the kind of performance films that she might indeed like. So we interpreted it kind of literally, but also broadly. So the earlier films that we're doing are very much based in a kind of uh, feminist performance art that Lil Picard herself did. But later on, we kind of have offshoots with more works based in things like nonfiction documentary as well, well as queer, queer elements. Mm -hmm. Yeah, anything you want to add to, to that, Andrew, and the selection of films? Yeah, well, um, yeah. You know, the history of avant-garde film goes back all the way to the 20s of artists using film. And I know, John, you mentioned uh, Rauschenberg's experiments in art and technology in 1966. And e even in the 20s, it was sort of like, you know, a precursor of this. Artists were very interested in um, coming from painting and sculpture and other disciplines and turning to film as a way to kind of, you know, reinvent what art was all about. and, and uh, uh, do things differently than they'd been done before. And one of the things that makes the 60s really interesting from the perspective of both art history and film history is that uh, in the art world, the concept of art itself was being completely criticized or, or um, I guess critiqued is maybe a better word. Institutions were under attack and people were really exploring performance and happenings and all these events as a way of um, uh, really, I, I guess, transcending the traditional concept of art, uh, while at the same time, film started to be recognized as an art in the 60s, mm -hmm. formally, through various institutions like um, Anthology Film Archives in New York and um, some other screening venues. And so there's this weird kind of um, parallel between the two, and there usually isn't a lot of crossover between them, so there are a lot of you know, histories of avant-garde film that leave out all the happenings and the performance stuff that was happening in art and just focus on, you know, film as, a, as an art. Um, and uh, the, uh, some of the art histories are just kind of, you know, not as interested in films that were made, you know, to mm -hmm. be films and, and screens. So one of the things, uh, another thing we wanted to do with this series was just kind of put those two kinds of works in dialogue with one another. And Lil Picard is somebody who had her uh, fingers in a lot of pies, so to speak, um, is a great inspiration for this kind of a thing, where instead of just doing the, the canonical avant-garde films of the 60s, we can sort of situate them in relation to a lot of these other uh, performance practices by people like Carolee Schneeman and Lil Picard and Hannah Wilkie and some of the people that uh, Kathy mentioned earlier. Am I correct in thinking that with some of these happenings and some of these events in people's homes and whatnot, um, maybe there are little home video or home film, uh, home film cameras that are being used? I mean, this is not professional quality stuff sometimes, right? Or am I mistaken? Uh, it varies, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, 
like the most famous Carly Schumann film is probably Fuses, I would say. Mm -hmm. And it's shot very unprofessionally. Um, but the work that's done to the film, the materiality of the film, mm -hmm. the, the scratches, the writing in this, really kind of suggests, yes, an artisanal hands, but also a very sophisticated one. Mm -hmm. yeah, so the aesthetic is is rough, but there's still a kind of knowingness and sophistication that accompanies it. Actually, one of the films in the series, um, Soft Fiction, which is screening the last week, the cinematography in that film is absolutely flawless. It consists of a bunch of monologues um, from female people, partially inspired on by facts, partially fiction. And the close-ups are really reminiscent of the best of Ingmar Bergman and Carl yeah. Dreyer, so it's really gorgeous. So I, I, I think, you know, it, it varies along the series and the mm -hmm. way in which they approach aesthetics and um, mm -hmm. either roughness or, or more kind of artistic precision. You, you're also right that there were a lot of, uh, especially uh, women filmmakers and artists who were interested in domestic interiors. So Car Fuses, the Carolee Schneeman film, is like a, is a portrait of her uh, relationship, her sexual relationship with James Tenney. And her cat. And her cat. Importantly, <laughs> her cat plays a major role. Um, and so it's this, you know, this really textural, uh, erotic portrait of her home life with mm -hmm. James Tenney. Um, and so, and then some of the other performance works, um, artists like Nina Sobel or um, uh, uh, who am I thinking of? The Semiotics of the Kitchen, Martha Rossler. Martha. Yeah. I am you. Oh, good. Right. Semiotics of the Kitchen. Yeah. Well, wonderful work that takes place in the kitchen as a kind of critique of that mm -hmm. domestic space. But a lot of works that are, you know, using food and using the kitchen and some of these domestic spaces. So there is a kind of, um, I don't know if it's necessarily a home, exactly a home video vibe, unless you make really amazing confrontational home right. videos right. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, uh, that upset convention. But there is that element in the work. Private well. spaces being more important than public ones, certainly. Yeah. yeah. And, and am I correct in thinking that with most of this counterculture stuff, whether it's the collage artwork of, of Alo Picard or some of these films, the goal wasn't to have mass distribution through Hollywood or a big show at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, right? This was, this was a whole other conception of what you might do with this work that was authentic to your life and your person. I, I think some, <laughs> some of those <laughs> artists would have really liked to have been shown at the Museum of Modern Art. I mean, certainly, I think um, getting into uh, the Gorilla Girls and various um, uh, artist coalition, there, there were various groups that were trying to critique the, um, the institutions, the, mm -hmm. the, the gallery institution. Um, so it was about this kind of interaction. It certainly was about these, these spaces, mm -hmm. which were changing. Now, I know that you're going to be showing uh, one film or more than one film of Yoko Ono, and they're not often shown. Is, uh, tell us about that. Well, I think Kathy actually can talk about uh, a little, I mean, a, a little bit about that, because it's a huge coup to even get the films mm -hmm. uh, and be able to screen them, um, because there's, a, you know, there are a lot of controls um, in place uh, when it comes to really showing anything uh, with Yoko Ono. Um, but even just the story of getting those films is kind of sure. interesting in well, itself. Well, actually, uh, one of the executors of the Picard estate, his name is John Hendricks, and he's a Fluxus scholar. 
Um, and of course, I got to know him fairly well over the course of the time of working on the project, visited him many times in his apartment in Greenwich Village, and he is Yoko Ono's curator. Uh, and at one point I said, do you think she would come to Iowa City? <laughs> I was really trying, um, but you know, unfortunately that didn't happen. But when uh, we were talking about this idea of a film series, I thought, well, maybe we can, we can get a loan. And, and so uh, John made this loan possible. And I, I've been told, I can't remember who said it, but, and I'm not, so I'm not 100% I'm sure, but I don't think that Yoko Ono's films have ever been screened at the University of Iowa. I'm not sure if somebody can confirm mm. that. But um, they haven't. Let's mm -hmm. just confirm it. It's more dramatic that way. Oh, thanks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I need to yeah, make sure all my I's are dotted and T's crossed, but, yeah. but you guys can go ahead and assert whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what films are they? We're showing uh, Cut Piece, Fly, Freedom, and Rape. Yeah. And I mean, I think Rape is probably the most well-known, and it also... Yeah points to another kind of thematic that runs through these films, which is the feminist uptake of film as a way to critique um, you know, the patriarchy. And one of the ways they formulate this critique is that women become objects of what's called the gaze, and there's a certain violence inherent in the fact that men are always lookers and women are always objects of the look. Men are always active, um, women are always passive. So all that rape is is, is literally a camera falling around Yoko Ono, but she um, associates that um, perspective, kind of voyeuristic and persistent one, as and a kind of rape. And her performance also brings that aspect of the cinematic gaze out. Hmm. Yeah. yeah, this is very interesting stuff. John, were you anxious to say something? It looked well, no, I was just thinking, <coughs> not to go all lowbrow on you, but I was thinking how some people didn't have a history in the avant-garde because they were so young, their first creative expressions happened. Uh, I'm thinking of my brother went to Stanford and he used to like to go hear this band that played at private parties called the Jefferson Airplane. And <laughs> two years later, they were regulars on something that if you haven't seen, I can't recommend it enough. It was the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. <laughs> and they literally, it was like the lunatics had taken over the asylum. And Gracie Slick, the lead singer, who is in her 70s, by the way, but Gracie Slick used to come on to the Smothers Brothers and just do whatever she wanted to do. And the Smothers Brothers indulged it greatly. But it was just, I'm thinking of that as an example of where very young artists started off in, in what can arguably be uh, avant-garde position but they quickly became mainstream. Mm -hmm. So not, it's not a way that they influenced the mainstream. Yeah. Similarly, a band like, uh, well, that guitarist, Jimi Hendrix, who mm -hmm. redefined the potentiality of the instrument. And at its very best, arguably, it's, it's a very good expression of popular mm -hmm. avant-garde music. So sure. I think that, that was happening uh, in great measure in ways that were very captivating. Yeah. And Yoko Ono is also kind of a representative of that as someone who was a conceptual artist, a filmmaker, and also very much a part of like popular culture in yeah. some respects. No, and can I just say, and I'm 
I'm so much more relaxed than I was an hour ago when I was asked <laughs> to give a social, political, cultural history of the 60s <laughs> in six minutes. But I think it's interesting that none of us have mentioned the Beatles, but they're sort of a case study in a way that the 60s went from something maybe a little gentle and a little like palatable to something wildly experimental. And there again, in their music and in the ways that they worked with their producer, George Martin, to produce, mm -hmm. and it was beyond commercial, they were it. Mm -hmm. That they, they used that platform to make extremely um, uh, experimental music. And somehow they're connected with Yoko Ono, I can't remember <laughs> how. Yeah, well, and also those of us who, who lived through that period or people who uh, look into that period realize that as the Beatles changed, and certainly they were experimenting with, with drugs, they went off to India, I mean, all kinds of changes in the way they produced their music, introducing sitars and things like this. Um, uh, you know, they were kind of a very public and visible example of protest against the war and, um, and, and kind of a turning away from tradition. Art, I want to come to you and um, talk to you a little bit about some of the performance art, uh, a little more in detail than, than we did in that first segment. Uh, maybe you can chime in to what these guys were saying about film. Um, sure, actually, uh, since the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour has <laughs> been invoked, you know, it occurs to me that that, that particular show is an interesting case study of um, a mainstream show that let in subversive sort of avant-garde elements and as a result was, uh, you know, mm -hmm. canceled <laughs> after not too long. And there were elements of kind of political theater um, that were not directly influential in terms of that show, but th there's a mirror between the kinds of skits that they did on that show and the sort of thing that uh, at the time new stand-up comedy groups like Second City yeah. were doing. Um, and uh, I think there's a, a book that recently came out about the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour that documents that in detail. I wish I had the title and, and author handy, but um, mm -hmm. it really is an interesting case study in that regard. Um, in terms of the theater, I've been sitting here thinking about how it's interesting, the theaters that I cited before, like the Open Theater and the Living Theater, um, were, um, um, I think there were two tendencies in the theater of the 60s. One was to kind of let in and crossbreed with other media. Um, but I'm not sure that really came into fruition until the 70s in a lot of ways in the work of the Worcester Group and Robert Wilson and uh, avant-gardists of that kind. Um, groups like the um, Living Theater and the Open Theater, although they may have shared performers with you know, some of the performance art and installation art of the time and happenings, for example, they were actually very much about this kind of Jersey Grotowski notion of poor theater, which was kind of stripping theater down to the essence of what theater could do um, in contrast to other forms and other media. Now, arguably, something like the Living Theater's Paradise Now was really a kind of uber happening <laughs> in a way. I mean, there's, there's an influence there. Maybe John can comment on that. Um, but I think the theater has always been a kind of mildly paranoid, self-regarding art form that fears for its extinction. <laughs> um, and it's very focused on its liveness and its unmediated quality. Um, and um, in some ways it will kind of um, crossbreed with other elements, um, uh, with the other arts, um, but 
um, one of the hallmarks of the of the, the avant-garde groups that I cited anyway of the time was like getting down to kind of the essence of a theatrical event, performer and audience mm -hmm. in contact with each other. Um, and um, the reason, actually I have a clip from the, uh, a documentary from WNET New York from around 1970 of, um, they, they did a, a, a public television, slightly watered down version of the open theaters, The Serpent. It's actually a really, really good um, document to have of, of the performance, although it leaves a lot out. Um, but also they did a number of interviews with the actors and with um, the founder of the theater, one of the co-founders of the theater, Joe Chaikin. And the reason um, this particular piece, The Serpent, is interesting is, is um, in part because the open theater was very much about breaking down the traditional linear narrative of conventional theater, and the idea of collage and montage, which was so important in um, Dadaism and in, and in um, I think, the work of Lil Picard, um, is something that shows up in the kind of play they're trying to create, because they juxtapose, um, they started out with wanting to explore the Garden of Eden mm -hmm. and the Book of Genesis, and what does it mean for us today from the perspective of um, 1967 or 8. Um, and they ended up juxtaposing it with personal narratives of sin and redemption drawn on experiences of the group um, of actors and with um, uh, dramatic reenactments of the Zapruder film of the Kennedy assassination and a reenactment of the assassination of Martin Luther King. And they do it sort of without comment. They put these elements together. The, the main thrust is uh, scenes from recognizable scenes, familiar scenes from the, from, um, the fall of Adam and Eve, um, which they keep coming back to. And this really wonderful kind of physical dramatization of the serpent done by the whole company. Um, but in between those scenes are these other contemporary scenes that kind of suggest issues of um, the fall that we're going through right now in the mm -hmm. 60s. What is that fall? What have we lost? Um, and anyway, I'd be, I thought it'd be interesting to play just uh, this audio clip, which is the first voice is one of the actors who I was unable to identify, and the second is Joe Chaikin, who was the director of the Open Theater, and it, it's representative of um, some of the thinking of these kinds of groups about what the theater was uh, after at the time. I define, having started from the book of Genesis, a description, and Hebrew myths, a description of the Garden of Eden. Uh, we tried to find a connection for ourselves. What is the Garden of Eden for us right now? What is our Garden of Eden? And uh, someone brought up the idea that the Garden of Eden, for many of us at that time, was our, our workshop in a loft where we all met every day for four hours, where we trusted each other, where we enjoyed our work, where the work was stimulating and exciting for a period of seven months. Originally, when we began to work together at the Open Theater, there was, it was very nonverbal, sort of away from speaking. And that was because there were two ways of talking. One was you talk conversational, one-dimensional, sort of non-anything non way of talking. And the other was you talk stage talk. You talk in a certain full way, in what was, what was understood to be a beautiful sound in a such-and-such such way, but that this was it. And for some reason, we felt that there was a lot in sounds and in uh, movement that was expressive that didn't have to do with either of those two things. And we try to dream up forms and exercises to get the actor to discover experiences of 
vocal and physical kinds. Because once he learns that there is a dimension of experience in this kind of expressiveness, then it's, it's sort of impossible for him not to want to develop that. There's, some, there's a point that I think should be made, is, is that the serpent is the actor is exploring something. That's going on to the, the, that voice is Jean-Claude Van Atali, who was one of the co-founders of the theater and who was their principal playwright. Um, and I was interested in playing that because I think it's um, representative of a certain kind of thinking from 60s alternative theater of um, the, the, the theatrical ensemble being a new kind of idealized community that can be a model for a new way of living. Um, this is our paradise. I mean, it's such a kind of, t from our perspective today, I see this sort of sort of a sweet, innocent idea. Mm -hmm. um, um, but also, uh, Joe Chaikin, the second voice, is talking a lot about moving away from language, and this is very important to the alternative theater of the time, to a much more physical type of performance, and this is being influenced very much by Antonin Artaud, um, and um, a certain kind of uh, physicalized performance that, um, is you know embodied on stage that is very very specifically theatrical and is very much connected to this poor theater idea mm -hmm. I was talking about before. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I mean I'm getting the feeling from this conversation that maybe the, the theater at the same time as being experimental and avant-garde in itself in some places maybe it was also somewhat insular in its <laughs> in its uh, approach. You're reminding me when you talked earlier. Uh, in the show about the way the theater moved off Broadway and off the stage and into lofts. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's a kind of really important performance work, and to bring mm -hmm. it back to Yoko Ono, a kind of uh, conceptual performance theater, not unlike giving, for example, the one that she and John Lennon did, mm -hmm. and I'm sorry I don't have the details of this, but as I recall and as I've read, they did a bed in, mm -hmm. where I think they stayed in bed for a month. With There's a film of it. It was a sign yeah. calling <laughs> peace, <laughs> the, uh, think peace, something like that. Mm -hmm. And it was a, uh, an extremely dramatic, in many ways, dramatic mm -hmm. improvisational performance based mm -hmm. on a couple of very simple concepts. Yeah. Another instance, I think, where the avant-garde had the absolute global world stage. Yeah. And as I recall, that some of this happened in Toronto. It was covered mm -hmm. by all media. And mm -hmm. part of the, the impetus for this performance was to gather, to get as much focus and spotlight, yeah. not on what they were doing as artists, but the issues that they were trying to bring mm -hmm. to the mm -hmm. forefront. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. David, I, I, let me bring it back to you here. I know that, that uh, gender and sexuality is something that you spent a lot of time working on related to film and film of this period. What, what was what was new at this time? What was different? You've spoken a little bit about how, how women were taking hold of some of their own, uh, they were producing their own art sure. uh, on film. Uh, what, were the, what was happening in terms of the presentation of, of sexuality, um, sensuality on screen? Well, you know, broadly speaking, of course, the counterculture went hand in hand with the birth of what were called at the time interest groups, which now has become identity politics, but with the civil rights movements, which kind of moved on to the women's rights movement, which moved on to gay and lesbian rights. So that was really kind of an impetus or a kind of force that really animated a lot of the discontent 
that gave rise to the kind of um, experimental disestablishmentarianist um, mm -hmm. communities, yeah, mm -hmm. um, that gave rise to this art, certainly. Um, we talked a bit about how the body was foregrounded in this living theater, um, and that's certainly true of these films as well, but it's interesting to ask the extent to which the body is a political or an indeed feminist trope. Interestingly, in the clip, and maybe I'm just being nitpicky, um, one of the commentators said, the actor explores his body. The actor, mm. you know, mm -hmm. he, this, um, not he and she, not the actress. So, you know, in a certain sense, for women, this turn to the body is about reclaiming the body, yes, um, turning against language and, and um, moving towards sensuality, but the question of the extent to which the body can be a political way of asserting one's, you know, particular breed of identity politics or feminism um, is certainly a really important, interesting, and ambiguous question, mm -hmm. I think. And that plays itself out in many of these films. Mm -hmm. um, and just vis-a-vis -vis theater, I mean, maybe Andrew could talk about this a little bit. It's also interesting, too, that some of these films aren't conventionally cinematic insofar as they're not staged only for the camera, but they're also um, just film performances, like Hannah Wilkie's Intercourse With is her on a stage listening to her answering these two messages, slowly taking off her clothes. But it's kind of like, you could say a concert film in a way, and that the camera um, is interestingly there with the audience. So it's simultaneously living theater, but of course not. It's also mm -hmm. film, and that's how we will experience it during the series. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, if I could just add, um, we are going to be able to preview for really the very first time um, some footage that was shot of some of Picard's performances by Sylviana Goldsmith. Um, and Sylviana has worked with Sid Hutner at Special Collections to transfer this footage from Super 8 um, so that um, Andrew and David can um, show some of it, um, hopefully at each, at each screening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it, it's one of the things that I've started to think about through doing this, um, this uh, screening series and uh, even just participating in this discussion is kind of what happens. I mean, I, I, listening to Art talk about the liveness of theater in the 60s and that emphasis on liveness and the physicality of performance, I, I start to wonder, like, uh, looking at now that we're in this position where that moment is historical and our whole access to it comes through films and videos and these other wonderful documents like sound recordings that, that Art brought in, does it does that make a difference, or does yeah. it does it change things? And um, you know, how do we experience those documents? Do we get access to that liveness, or are we always kind of is it always mediated in some way? That's interesting because the primary documentation that we have of the Living Theater's Paradise now is a film by Sheldon Rocklin mm -hmm. called Signal Through the Signals Through the Flames, and it's shot in a sort of um, part cinema verite, part quasi-psychedelic style, where it's <laughs> heavily colorized and blurred in yeah. places. And um, I feel like uh, it's sort of overdone. I wish it were just, <laughs> 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 I, don't, I don't know what the cinematic term would be, but 
more of a direct straight. record of yes, straight, yeah. straight. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, um, so it's uh, you know definitely this kind of um, idea at the time of sort of blowing your mind with how we're going to put this on film. Yeah. Um, uh, as we sort of conclude this part of our conversation, I, I wonder, you know, we've been talking a lot about what the artists were trying to do, what they were trying to express. Um, let's reflect for just a second on, on how the larger world, the people who were not involved in the production of this art, how they felt about it. What was, uh, what was the uh, public reaction to things like happenings, um, to, uh, to some of this art that was very new, very different, very kind of shocking? I mean, I think some of it, and unfortunately this is something that the art world has suffered with way too long. It's sort of a uh, nightly news doing, local nightly news thing. They're those crazy artists, they're at it again, and mm -hmm. here's some some strange thing that sort of gets trotted out like that. And I, I, I do think regrettably that created a, a sense of difference and a kind of alienation between the general public and, and artists. And then on the other hand, as I mentioned before, so many of these things became mainstream. Mm -hmm. And there is a, a way in which they then became co-opted. I mean, for those of you who are students of the Jefferson Airplane, you know they went on to become the Jefferson Starship, <laughs> which is one of the most like pathetic, uh, <laughs> just terrible, I mean, artistically mm -hmm. uh, bankrupt uh, <laughs> operations. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's there's a, a very interesting pair of exhibits right now at the Museum of American Art, part of the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C., that my friend and I saw a couple of weeks ago. It's very, very interesting. On the main floor, you have the collection of Norman Rockwell works that Steven Spielberg and George Lucas have, have assembled over the years. It's, it's shared there for the public. And so when we got in, it was a huge mass of people waiting to look at these, you know, incredibly wonderful um, pieces and um, you know all of us spend a lot of time I'm sure wandering through art museums I don't know how, how long the average person stays in front of a great work of art but I can tell you that each person who looked at these Norman Rockwell pieces must have stood before each one for a good five to ten minutes I mean this was they were recalling their own lives or their grandparents lives or or seeing a little toy airplane in this thing that was like their toy airplane it was really amazing to me that there was such not just that there was interest but there was real deep concentration on those works and then upstairs on the second floor there was an exhibit called hide and seek and uh, you may or may not have read about this but I think you'd find it interesting uh, gay art from well actually going way back I mean there's a photo of Walt Whitman there there are pieces, um, uh, artists from the late uh, 1800s here, famous American artists that I didn't realize had, had uh, you know, produced art that, that would be in this exhibit. But in any case, a lot of male and a lot of female artists doing work that was considered, um, you know, sort of really groundbreaking in this period. Lots of people also in this, in this exhibition, I was happy to see that there was such a good crowd. But to have those two things, one on the main floor, one on the other floor, was just kind of, I thought, just wonderful. They were so completely different and, and um, revealed so much about what the world had been through in the last, I don't know, however many decades, you know? It's very, very interesting. And, and I want to thank you guys for coming here. Do you want to say anything more about the films that are going to be shown? Kind of just speaking of gay and lesbian rights or visibility, if there's one film I'd like to particularly plug, and it kind of ties into this, and it kind of ties into your question about the consequences of the, these films. It's a film called, the title is very long, let me read it. 
It's not the homosexual who is perverse, but the situation in which he lives. Really? It's a 1971 German film, Rosa von Pronheim, who's actually a man and who um, Lopecard. Was a friend of Lopecard, yeah. Yeah, and had a similar trajectory of Berlin to New York. Anyways, but this film actually, it's a German film. It actually launched a number of the first kind of gay and lesbian rights movements in Berlin. So this is a film that's particularly political mm -hmm. um, that had some tremendous consequences and by a director that Lopecard um, knew very well. Yeah, 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 well. Uh, anything from you, Andrew, before we go into the next segment? I, if not, I say thank you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, so Andrew Ritchie, David Harvey, thank you. I'm gonna thank let you. you guys go and ask Lisa to come back up for this last segment. So please thank our guests. <laughs> So here in the final segment of World Canvas, uh, we're going to try to take the historical distance view on this era and uh, discuss how the revolution in social mores, the lifting of taboos, the advocacy for freedom of expression, uh, how all of that uh, influenced what has come since. Um, I, we have, you know, these four guests who've been with us throughout the evening. I'm so grateful that you're here. I'll reintroduce everybody. Art Bereka from theater next to me here, John Winnette from Intermedia, Kathy Edwards from the University of Iowa Museum of Art, and Lisa Heinemann from History. So, um, what, what can you say? You've already mentioned this a couple of times, John, some things that uh, seem strange and shocking at the time and now really are, are very much part of the mainstream. Uh, I'm sure each of you would have reflections on, on what we still retain from this era. Could you start, John? Uh, well, I'm glad you asked me that. <laughs> I'm going to be like a politician now and answer a different question, sure. which is sort of how, how the 60s ended. Yeah. And I think it was so full a decade that it took 15 years to end. But I think it had, had two endings. One was in 1974 when uh, Richard Milhouse Nixon was uh, resigned the presidency, and then a year later with the fall of Saigon. And I think that marked a period, really was in great measure, it marked the end of the anti-war movement, and, and it raised the question of now what? And I think one of the things that's remarkable about that period is that a number of extremely well-honed anti-war activists and what I refer to as cultural animators uh, immediately repurposed their skills and started artists' organizations, um, uh, performance groups, and community centers, many of which live to this day. Mm -hmm. So organizations like uh, Art in General in New York, Southern Exposure in San Francisco, uh, organizations that continue to be absolutely critical as incubators of contemporary avant-garde mm -hmm. work. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I hope that ties yeah. in a little bit to your question. Oh, sure. What, what do you think about this uh, art, um, either in terms of theater or just mm -hmm. culture generally? Mm -hmm. um, well, a couple of things. The uh, groups like the Living Theater and the Open Theater were at the far edges of a really important decentralization that was taking place in the American theater of the time. So we had off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway and then these downtown theater groups, so-called alternative theater groups that were really um, at the outer edges of the off-off-Broadway theater. But at the same time, there was a, 
a new idea about theater not needing, being need to be made in New York, <laughs> mm -hmm. and especially mm -hmm. not necessarily on Broadway. Um, and there was a regional theater movement or resident theater movement that flourished in the 60s and 70s, a lot of it with uh, funds from the National Endowment for the Arts, which um, then, of course, went into to decline. Um, but a lot of those theaters are still with us today. So that's kind of one legacy of the era, which is the idea of, um, to some extent, democratizing the, mm -hmm. the theater. Mm -hmm. um, there was, um, you were asking about audiences before and, and um, how they were impacted by this work. And what occurred to me was that I think there's no question that groups like the Living Theater and the Open Theater brought a younger audience into the theater. And that has been a consistent theme um, of um, uh, alternative theater groups since that time. That they, one of their specific aims is to bring in um, audiences that would not go to or could not afford to go to the big regional theater in town. Um, and they had a very specific impact too on um, very important theater artists and writers. One particular connection I can think of is uh, Sam Shepard. Mm -hmm who started out writing plays with the open theater and was very much affected by their approach and then went on to be, you know, mm -hmm. Sam Shepard. <laughs> Starting out as a very, very much um, uh, kind of alternative, radical playwright and then moving more and more into the mainstream mm -hmm. and, you know, becoming well known as a film actor and director, writer of screenplays. Um, so I don't know, maybe there's a, a case study there mm -hmm. in, the, in the arc of the avant-garde artist from avant-garde to, to mainstream. Um, within the theater of the 1960s, it's, inter it's interesting to note that a lot of the techniques of groups like the living theater were appropriated pretty quickly by more mainstream works, like um, the musical Hair mm -hmm. was a kind of Broadway version of mm -hmm. alternative theater in a lot of ways. Right. Um, or uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, which came later, or um, O Calcutta. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> does anybody remember O Calcutta? <laughs> um, yes. But a lot of the, the ways in which the alternative theaters were um, challenging the mainstream got gradually absorbed into the mainstream um, as uh, ways of bringing in the more commercial audiences. Yeah. Um, Thing and you know your your comments inspire this, but you know if we think of the the '60s as having a spirit of resistance and a and a push towards self determination, I think we see that a lot contemporarily in in hit and run spaces and the idea of DIY um, artists not waiting to get to have the curator, with all due respect, invite them into the museum, but they're starting their own alternative organizations. Yeah. I see that very much as a product of the mm -hmm. uh, kind of consciousness of the 60s. And even locally in Iowa City, uh, Public Space One yeah. would be an absolutely brilliant example of a group of people with very limited resources cobbling together an ambitious and admirable program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's skip and, and in fact, just to follow up on um, what you were telling about your experience at mm -hmm. the Smithsonian, uh, and I was thinking about something that PS1 did, which was to show the David Wanjanaritz Wanarowicz film that was censored 
from hide and seek. Um, PS1 just showed it the really? other night. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I just thought that was fantastic. Yeah. Um, going back to reception, I do think that some of um, the work of Picard and some of these uh, avant-garde artists at the time, I think their work was considered vulgar and brutal uh, and violent and, and, was con and was looked at as a, as a menace to the reigning social order. But then, in fact, through artists such as Wan Andy Warhol, um, who, you know, started, they all started out anti-commercial. In fact, they ended up embracing mm -hmm. uh, it. And through um, educational institutions like the University of Iowa, um, Hans Brader started the uh, Intermedia uh, program, and artists such as Anna Mendieta and Charles Ray, who are, you know, now icons of, of the art world, um, came through some some of the major universities, yeah. um, and so it's perpetuated that way. And I agree. I do think that there is um, a vein of um, aesthetics now being uh, communicated by art, young artists, which which mimics, I think, the work of the '60s and '70s. And there is this kind of kind of more brutal expressionistic. Um, fully filling entire spaces, um, reacting against institutions. Um, uh, it's sort of a mirroring um, scenario that, yeah. that you see um, happening. I think there's a parallel in the theater too, which mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, our MFA graduates or graduates of our undergraduate program are much more likely to leave here and uh, form their own alternative groups um, sometimes while also trying to pursue more conventional sorts of careers, yeah. but um, the 60s avant-garde theater has become more of the model for um, what theater is about. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, you can pick any kind of mid-sized city in the United States that has a, um, a resident theater company and you will find these small mm -hmm. uh, alternative theater companies. I'm thinking of a place like Columbus, Ohio, where I lived in the 1980s, there was one theater in town, which was a semi-professional community theater that eventually went equity, and then, as so many of them do, when they think too big, it, 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 it uh, died out um, after getting a beautiful new theater space. However, by the early late 80s, early 90s, there were a number of small, interesting um, theater companies with graduates coming out of Ohio State and other programs in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. And there's actually a very, very active theater community there. Mm -hmm. um, not to mention the Wexner Center, which is an institution, but a, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, a place that fosters the avant-garde. So I think there's a parallel development in, in the theater. Well, Lisa, let's uh, kind of wrap up our thoughts with you. Um, uh, what do you think remains from those, from those days? Well, you know, in some ways, you know, the changes are just so vast. Um, you know, so much that we absolutely take for granted um, was it would have been unthinkable without the movements of those times. You know, in a political sense, having having the two major, you know, contenders for the Democratic nomination for president be a woman and an African American man. I mean, that's yeah. it would have been absolutely unthinkable um, without the political movements of those years, or even in a, in a sort of a lifestyle sense. Again, every time I see, you know, a bunch of 20-year-olds renting an apartment together, I say, do you realize what a radical act that is? Yeah. You know, whether or not you're sexually involved, but the, the notion of, of creating these intentional communities um, is something that's just, just part of the texture of our lives now. 
Um, but I think that another thing that, um, that really remains are some of the sort of internal contradictions and tensions that members of the counterculture themselves identified. Um, one being, you know, what is the relationship between the sexual revolution and, the, and feminism? Um, does the sexual revolution mean freedom for women or does it mean additional pressures? pressures to perform um, or additional sort of freedom of the marketplace to exploit women's bodies. And again, we see films like Rape that, that are already talking about at the time. Um, you know, related to that, the question of, of commercial culture and consumer culture. Um, and whereas, you know, some people would sort of use a language of co-optation, sort of saying you've got this counterculture and then it gets co-opted. For other people at the time, recognizing a kind of an intrinsic tension, what, is, what does it mean to be the part of the counterculture if you can't go buy blue jeans or if you can't go buy an LP of the Beatles? Um, and, and how do you, and, and if, if part of your activity is to create commercial products, to create that, that alternative newspaper that you hope people will buy. Um, and those tensions that, that they were, many of them were very aware of at the time um, are things that, that you know, we now see very much part of our world. What is the, what's, how, how, can you, how can you create anything without immediately having it either just fall on its face or if it's gonna succeed, it's gonna have to become sort of corporatized. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something we live with very much today. Right, yeah. I, mean, I, was, I was thinking, I, as I was preparing for this uh, conversation, I also think there's a certain amount of passing of the baton. Mm. So as, you know, this period of the 60s, which I'm saying maybe ended around 1975, uh, you know, this uh, group of uh, English uh, musicians and their impresario, Malcolm McLaren, started a band called the Sex Pistols. And although they were never commercially viable, mm -hmm. they absolutely uh, reinforced or restated a kind of uh, oppositional stance to dominant culture. Uh, Patti Smith, the poet and, and musician, was just getting ready in the mid-70s to late-70s to make her mark. And uh, she continues to be, I think, one of the most vital artists uh, somewhat mainstream artists working today. And her biography about her mm -hmm. love affair, her life with the poet, I'm sorry, the photographer Robert Maplethorpe yeah. uh, just won the National Book Award. It's called Just Kids. And it's a really beautiful, very lyrical text which mm -hmm. uh, reflects some of her ideas. So mm -hmm. some of it goes on because some of the same practitioners are right. still playing a vital role in the culture. Right. Well, and then there were people, you know, intellectuals like Susan Sontag, who, who uh, wrote, you know, incredibly compelling and challenging pieces about what we all assumed about our country, about ourselves, about our sexuality, and so on, um, uh, having died not too long ago. But, but she spanned those years, and, um, uh, and I think her work was always respected, although not always loved. Um, do you have anything else you want to add on, on this topic? Kathy, any final wrap-up thoughts regarding the uh, exhibit? Well, one uh, aspect I think of Picard that um, I didn't really touch on but is fascinating, well, maybe I did touch on it, which, which is about kind of being able to figure out her code from the material she used 
And collage being, uh, picking up on what Art said, just probably her primary method, both in her performance uh, in, in a sort of a non-linear uh, approach to uh, communication, um, but also in her materials, the materials she embedded. And, and she kind of picks up on, on, you know, obviously Dada and Schwitters and, and what was going on in, in Germany, but also um, when I was doing a little bit of uh, research, I was thinking about the museum's Jackson Pollock uh, mural and thinking about Pollock and the body and how um, Picard, you know, came out of that, and many of these young performance artists came came out of that, but also um, read that he, and I didn't realize this, but that he also embedded um, just everyday materials. He embedded cigarette butts in his in his work, which I did not know, and that was actually something I was really, that made me smile. But, um, uh, just thinking about this uh, this collection and um, how much there is to experience as a viewer, um, many different things to take out of it, uh, and I'm I'm just anxiously awaiting seeing it installed mm -hmm. uh, on the third floor of the IMU, and um, hope to see all of you there. And what's the opening and date again? I'm sorry? The opening date for the exhibit? Um, it will be open on February 24th. Great, good. Well, uh, let me say thanks to everybody who's participated in this program tonight, and all of you for coming. Thank you, uh, Art Barreca, John Wynette, Kathy Edwards, and Lisa Heineman. A big hand for these folks, huh? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, we've come to the end of our program, and as you know, World Canvas is a production of international programs at the University of Iowa. Our production partners are UITV, the Pendercrest Museums, KRUI, and ITS at the university. Uh, the program will be broadcast on cable services around the state, on Iowa Public Radio, and on KRUI. Free worldwide listening will be available on the Public Radio Exchange. Our next program in this series will be in this room on February 18th, and the topic is East Africa. Uh, we have a great lineup, and I hope you can join us for that. Uh, big thank you to my friends and colleagues in international programs, Caitlin McBride, Connie Shea, Christopher Clough, Amy Green, and Samantha Bell. And that's it for this edition of World Canvas. Thank you so much for coming, and good night. <laughs>